0: Alright, so where last we left off, we'd already covered
1: the economic forces, I think, that broadly went into shaping the state, the ones that kind of run it through the 70s, as well as some of the weird stuff they were getting up to. We even talked about some of Michigan's elite families, but...
2: Yeah, and actually, I wanted to say real quick, so like... Like you said, the original families would have been, like, lumber families. And then there are, you know, a handful of families that made their fortunes off of the auto industry and related industries off of that. And then the Romneys and the DeVos family are really, like, in some ways, like, Johnny come lately. It's like, the, the Romneys, like, Governor Romney was rich, but he wasn't as rich as Mitt Romney would become. And, like, the DeVos family are like almost cartoonish, you know. They made their money off of a fucking like Ponzi scheme basically. Or you know, like a MLM or whatever. So like <laughs> they are like visible, but they are probably not the more important people, like the like the Ford family obviously, like some of these like more heavy hitters. Even the Rockefellers, you know, had a big presence in Michigan like Just, you know, like, there are, like, more powerful families that are, like, less uh, in the public eye, is what I would say.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting.
2: Now, speaking real briefly here, I did look into a certain area, a certain thing called the Ionia State Hospital. Yes. And what I found was that there was a whole... MKUltra subproject, subproject 39, in fact, that dealt specifically with Ionia State Hospital, where they were studying sexual psychopaths, and they, basically the subproject was basically interrogating sexual psychopaths under different circumstances, like without drugs, with drugs, with multiple types of drugs, you know, XYZ factors, and to try to like see how you can manipulate sexual psychopaths. And what they found was, or what I found, was that Henry Lee Lucas, the serial killer, was there at the time <laughs> that MKUltra was doing studies into sexual psychopaths. Henry Lee Lucas is a sexual psychopath. <laughs> and he cites his time at Ionia as a time where he underwent a personality change that made him want to kill people. Now my contention basically was that this could be evidence that he was uh, he underwent behavioral modification experiments to make him more violent. I don't exactly know why you would want to do that, but this is MKUltra, right? And further, like Ionia State Hospital later went on to study psychosurgery mm-hmm. for these psychopaths. Uh they uh really they wanted to like put chips in people's brains and shit and also like do lobotomies, all kinds of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. So basically they again like we were talking about with like the O'Brien stuff. Like there's a kernel of truth there and the truth is horrifying and it goes so much further than I ever would have thought. But the difference is that we have proof of that we don't need to like make it out to be worse than it is yeah you know
1: and in in the interest of maybe following up the ionia topic because i know you covered it on program to chill it was a very good episode you did out there thank you i it brought up like um an old memory of mine i think where it's like michigan has had some degree of State funding for its mental health institutions, and this may be part of a larger you know, discussion on mental health care overall that I don't know we're both qualified to unpack, mm-hmm. but what's been unique mm-hmm. about Michigan's own history is very shortly after statehood, it decides that mental health care is one of those things that the state will have to be involved in either in setting land aside or in setting funding aside, and it does both. Mm -hmm. So land is granted to build sanitariums and asylums, and then a certain amount of money is set aside to fund them. And I think the state goes from a total of 16 or so psychiatric institutions across the state from like the 1800s on, to now what is left to being just five state-run inpatient institutes um which is which is unique from like an american perspective right which is like okay from the get-go this is seen as like something that has to be dealt with collectively but what little i do understand is that like our paradigm for mental health care and incarceration both come from like early quaker settlements in from new england Hmm. And there's something, there's some kind of dark poetry, I can only call it that, in knowing that Ionia State Hospital became a penitentiary, or it became a correctional institute. It's no longer a psychiatric institute.
2: Yeah, no, like, have you ever read much Foucault?
1: i have not but i know he speaks on like uh, anti-psychiatry and you know the the diagnosis of social problems as psychiatric problems of course
2: yeah and like basically like how society controls the individual like it you know started and like a lot of these techniques like were developed like in prisons and psychiatric facilities and then were extended to like schools hospitals you know the police and so forth mm-hmm. like it is interesting right because like the state funded all of these like institutions and then they did all these like heinous human experiments in them right there's also just this more like a uh, normal story of just like Ionia was also just very abusive to like African Americans who were there Separate from the MKUltra stuff, well, overlapping Mm -hmm. somewhat. And then, like, what is the story of these clinics, but that they end up getting privatized or shut down. And that is, you know, also largely what ends up happening to so many other institutions in society. So you really do see it's almost like a vanguard of, like, where society is going is, like, what's happening in these prisons and clinics.
1: Yeah, like, once again, this vulnerable population, in this case, like, people with severe mental illness, not necessarily all of them, like, criminal, many of them not criminal, right? Just being kind of put out on their own, or being thrust back onto their families who may not have the resources or know how to help them, you know?
2: hmm And then that just makes the perception of, like, the—of Detroit— all the more unlivable it kind of increases the white flight and the capital flight you know these reifying systems of making everything worse basically yeah
1: um but ionia wasn't the only site where some of these weird things are happening i think you also mentioned that wayne state university may have been one of the sites where this happened as well or somewhere in Detroit, there was a facility where this was going on.
2: Uh, yes. At Wayne State University, I think there was a thing called the Lafayette Clinic. Mm-hmm. And both Ionia and the Lafayette Clinic were funded covertly by the Human Ecology Fund under the MKUltra <sighs> umbrella, right?
1: Oh, man. And that's, again, for the listener, the Human Ecology Fund funding these experiments, this is stuff that's already documented. This isn't stuff that, like... Mm-hmm. You know, like some of the stuff we've said that might not be conclusive. this is the stuff that's already been written about.
2: We are on strong footing here. Like, there's really good documentation for all of this stuff. And in fact, it was, uh, they. wouldn't you know, they were basically working on the same thing at Lafayette Clinic as Ionia, which is to say uncontrolled aggression.
1: Mm-hmm. Basically like we can tell that like this age that we're speaking of of the seventies as this like rise and fall of like great society liberalism is also the era in which a lot of this weird sub rosa shit is going on. Mm. And we've talked about it from the perspective of MK Ultra, you know, the the classic almost uh parapolitical story at this point right um but maybe let's let's speak on like (laughs) the selected population this might have been deployed on and we haven't fully painted our picture of the 70s right because we should tie this into the student movement and maybe radical politics in michigan at this era right
2: that's
0: right and
2: I'm trying to think, I'm like, okay, well, I'll just say it and I'll, I won't go into too much detail, but like there are really two, Michigan, like if you, okay, if you are the powers that be and you're trying to control society, there are really two groups of people you need to worry about in Michigan. We're talking student radical movement and the black population. Yep. To extent also labor union. so I guess maybe three. And wouldn't you know, they actually overlap quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. And really quick, I just have a little bit on this. Like, Michigan has always been the site of very weird psyops, psychological operations, against all three groups. And one of the ones that I'm particularly interested in is the Nation of Islam, Mm -hmm. which I consider to be essentially a psyop on the black population. I know that that probably might sound inarticulate coming from me, but I think that the uh, there's a strong case there. Uh, basically, the short version is that the Nation of Islam might have not actually been started by a black man in the first place. Wallace Fard Muhammad was maybe just, like no one, no one knows like where this guy came from, and you know. He had quite light skin is what I would say. He joins the Moorish science temple, which is essentially like this weird Rosicrucian order from which also the five percenters and the black Israelites also like derive. And so basically he sets up the nation of Islam. And then he basically like, he sets it up in 1930. In 1932, there's this bizarre story about a possible human sacrifice. And then Wallace Fard Muhammad just straight disappears from the face of the earth in 1934. And from that point on, it's the Elijah Muhammad game, right? Mm -hmm. With Malcolm X coming and going, tragically. But like, basically the nation of Islam is just I like I can't unpack it. It's just it is like a weird psyop up is what I'd probably say and it like has its roots in Detroit.
1: You know, this is this is where like I have I have friends I can speak to on this who can like confirm this and like I wish just yeah. ne- not, neither me or you being black in this case, right? So we can't speak authoritatively on this. We're more so well-informed observers than anything else at best. Um yes. I've talked. I've talked to both my partner and my buddy about this, where it's like NOI, Hoteps, Black Israelites, whatever you want to call that umbrella. Largely, right, is like they found the the golden me- medium of like appropriating the style and rhetoric of Black radicalism, mm-hmm. but. basically basically saying what is either fundamentally reactionary at best or nonsensical at worst. Um, And even, like, uh, like, (laughs) there's less uh, politically motivated figures like uh, Tariq Nasheed to this day, right, who, like, at this point don't have a real political project. They're more so just, like, pickup artists calling women sluts types, really, that don't... (laughs) They're not even... Cultural
2: grievances type of shit.
1: Really, yeah, really at that point, right, who come out of that NOI tradition, and it's like, you know, there is something to be said about, like, these enclaves of what I can only describe as, like, distraction masked as radicalism Mm -hmm. that fundamentally never get, like, shut down or challenged... I think if people do speak on them, they speak correctly on them being wrong, but either don't know this connection to weird stuff or like have just decided to not pay attention to it. That like they don't they're not going to draw the connection because correctly, these guys are annoying, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love the bow tie look. It's a hard look, but (laughs) there's a reason why like they killed Malcolm X when he became like a normal Muslim.
1: Yeah. I mean there's this story of like um Malcolm X basically going on Hajj and like telling someone <laughs> in Mecca about like the the NOI shit and like Yakub and all that. And this guy basically looking at him like are you crazy is that Islam and then he was like damn I got to really step it up. I got to I got to practice this shit seriously.
0: Mhm.
1: Um but, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, we should both maybe endeavor to get people of color to speak on this. Because there is correctly, correctly as you stated, like a degree of damage these guys are doing that is not incidental. It is not unintentional. It is a co-optation of the appearance of radical politics to basically either waste time or so radical, uh so like uh, either like culture war resentment or reactionary tendencies uh in certain elements of of uh black populations that it's just unfortunate, you know?
2: Yes. And luckily there are more than enough white organizations that have similar dynamics going on that we're about to talk about to where we don't have to dwell too much on the nation of islam for sure
1: well i mean let's let's maybe let's let's be the first ones to do it can we say that like christian identity stuff uh white supremacy stuff is like the hotep formula writ large for that audience you know
2: oh absolutely audi like Mm -hmm. Okay, I've said before, right, Mormonism is, like, soft Christian identity, and it basically does do the whole, like, white guy wearing the Egyptian headdress, like, yeah, like, this is, you know, every, you know, the original version was like, yeah, actually, like, they were ancient British guys, and, like, Mormons have that. They basically do have a mode where almost all world history is somehow related to them, and it's largely without any evidence, obviously. And yes, it is absolutely the same trick. Like you can basically just make up archaeology and just make up weird stories because the nation of Islam is basically at its core. It was like half like a UFO cult, half Rosicrucian, weird occult shit. Uh And that's what Mormonism is. It is basically the same trick, (laughs) even almost like down to some of the sartorial choices. Okay like now i gotta why do all the missionaries look like freaking like they're from like the 1950s it's the same freaking thing
1: i th- th- this is like we're we're approaching a new synthesis here right this is my mm-hmm. wife, this is my partner's joke i'm gonna steal um i give her full <laughs> credit for this one but like she was basically asked me like what would an indian hotel be like it's like she made this (laughs) joke about this guy like we was gurus but it's like no that's literally (laughs) hindu for motherfuckers they are exactly like that and i'm just wondering like there is this weird like trend like i've noticed this like every culture has this guy who's like reactionary not at all well read not at all ready to admit he doesn't know shit he's not qualified to speak on and if you ask him, like, what's his cosmology of history, or you just let this guy talk too long, he'll just he'll just be like, my ethnicity invented X, Y, and Z. And, like, the tamest <laughs> version of this is, like, every ethnicity thinks they invented chess. That's the most yeah. innocent version of it. And the most, like, perverse, fascistic, horrible instinct of it is, like, we invented civilization, you dogs deserve to die. But there's like there's there everyone seems to have that guy. it's It's a universality that unites us all that we gotta stop. We gotta stop it.
2: <laughs> absolutely,
1: okay. <laughs> Let me get out of my Zizekian framework there, so you're right that the n o i is this is this bizarre formation that has the i I, I don't know. What the oh, sacred? Oh. Oh, go
2: ahead, go ahead. Uh, oh no, I forgot one other thing. I okay, you remember I did that like, or I used to do a long series on Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. dude, the Nation of Islam got funding from Imperial Japan at one point.
1: Okay, that they, explains they why. You were a
2: fucking psyop, like an actual one.
1: Okay, it it makes sense because like someone on Black Twitter was tweeting like, "Dude, how did the Hoteps make it to Tokyo?" <laughs> You're just walking in to Tokyo, and you're hearing black Israelite shit. You're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute.
2: And then uh, my hypothesis is that at a certain point, probably around World War II, the FBI took over. Okay, that's my theory. I can't prove that, but I know for sure they did get like funding from Japan. That for sure is like academically
0: cited.
1: That's that's a unique connection. I had no fucking...
2: And I'm pretty sure that there are... I'm pretty sure there is paper on, like, uh, FBI informants all throughout the Nation of Islam. I don't think that's, like, crazy. In fact, I think that, like, a lot of the work on, like, who killed Malcolm X kind of shows that to be the case.
1: Do you think it was Farrakhan who killed uh, Malcolm X or he just had a role in it?
2: Uh... I'm not in the weeds as to the particulars, but I'm certain he was at a minimum had a role in it.
1: Okay, this is this I'll, is all very new territory for me. I'm just like, wow,
2: dude. I'll do you one more. Okay, this is also hypo, This is also not. This is Jimmy shooting from the hip. But okay, I've I've heard from other researchers and speculation and reading that uh, Farrakhan might have received like nlp training (laughs) possibly of the type that uh possibly like uh hubbard type shit which i don't think is that crazy because um
1: nlp like they're
2: they're a cult uh neurolinguistic programming
1: oh fuck no oh god
2: because he has a very unique way of talking that does tend to like get in your head and almost like teach you a new vocabulary, giving you a new framework for like thinking. That's like NLP shit.
1: That's that's something that like I'm I'm just fixated on now and like I wanna it's I gotta, what cults do. Yeah. Yeah I gotta I gotta I gotta talk to to specifically people about this because it's like
2: you should, should definitely do episodes on that topic. I'm not gonna do it necessarily. Like we might we might, get you on. It, but... we might get you on we might get you on. Yeah, I could at least do the Japan part, yeah. We
1: could at least get you as like the subject matter expert on some of this and maybe like field our questions. But like yeah, like the the discussions I've had with um with black folks about this is like these seg- these segments like have di- like basically turned like black radicalism into like an aesthetic and like a style of speech. hmm Um, to the point that like the Black Panther himself is like a it's like a memetic identity more than it is like a cadre of revolutionary socialists, you know, fighting for reversing injustice, you know what I mean? So whether it's
2: like, I I sure hope that doesn't happen to the non-black U S left. Oh wait. Oh wait. (laughs) It freaking did there too.
1: Oh God. (laughs) Exactly. So using the Nation of Islam there as microcosm, let's talk broadly about the left at this time. So as we stated last time around, um, the American left is turning more anti-communist in its character. Um, The communists have been purged from the unions. um, And basically, I'm not how do I how do I put this, right? Is that The the favorability among the American left for the Leninist Stalinist line isn't as popular. Um so there's this push ideologically for this more like democratized or open form of the left. there's a there's a there's a lane for that opening up. And to speak specifically, here we're talking about the SDS and the Port Huron Statement first. So, the SDS comes out of a broader tradition in uh, the—I think it was called the Industrial Defense League or something. Upton Sinclair was part of this organization, basically. Of uh, and was like socialists who were involved in the academy or were college students who had. socialist views. The SDS comes out as like a reconstitution of that. It's student-led. And they come together at this retreat hosted by the UAW. Walter P. Reuther basically hosts them. And this is... It's. It, I'm going to be honest. It's cool that a union has like retreats and places for people to hang out. I think that's that's cool. Yeah. Um. So the Port Huron statement is kind of their manifesto on... How they believe the left needs to be reconstituted and how they define the student movement in their era.
2: So go ahead. Let me let me jump in. Here's where it's so interesting, okay? Because like I feel like possibly I let Ruther off the hook a little bit. But like Victor and Walter Ruther worked for the CIA at different points, okay? So for example they went over to west germany to bolster union labor unions there they were working for the american federation of labor but the cia was using the afl to basically bolster trade unionism so that west german communism like communist elements wouldn't basically there was a part, there was a period in the cold war where like the cia was bolstering anti-communist trade unions to like push off the communist trade unions. Makes sense. And and so like there was this interesting period where like the Ruther brothers were working with intelligence to do that. Were they aware they were working or? Well, that's the interesting thing too, because uh, uh, listeners can check out also my episode with uh, Rob McKenzie on. That was a good one uh, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, especially his book, which documents how like, AFELT, which was like the American, uh, whatever, I'm too tired to remember it, but like basically there were these labor unions that were working hand in glove with intelligence and also with U.S. industry. And so like they did know after a certain point. And in fact, one of the reasons why they ended up trying to kill, they, I'm leaving Undefined, tried to kill the Ruther brothers was because they kept being very ambivalent as to the work they were doing because it kept really ultimately backfiring for the even the anti-communist labor unions because like they they didn't really want the labor unions they were just using this as a cudgel to hit the communists over the head internationally at first and also later on domestically so anyway where we're going with that is the Port Huron Statement is a very interesting document, right?
1: It is, and I want people to pay attention to the to the core contents of this document. So mm-hmm. we'll start with the secondary position in the document before we get to the primary one. I'm gonna I'm gonna give the game away if I say the first one. So the mm-hmm. secondary point of the Huron Statement is they see the role of the student movement and broadly so the academy as this permanent institutional position that the left can house itself in in order to champion and defend both grassroots organizing for social issues as well as unions um and this would mark a later dissent as some would call basically the retreat into the academy of the left and how mm-hmm. our modern, you know, our modern left is more intellectualized than it is organized or militant in some capacity. Now, of course, there's far more to lose these days. These, you know, organizations are more demobilized and debilitated than they once were. Um, so whether by necessity or by design or by fleeing, uh the left has become intellectualized in the West, particularly in the United States as a result of that. Um, I also think that the decision to retreat into the academy because it has institutional legitimacy is... Well, it's interesting, right? Because it's like, yeah, it's an institution, but it's an institution of the United States. And if you're smart, you should know that, like, it's still a bourgeois project. Its institutions still you know fuel and bolster that order so the academy itself is not this inherently progressive or impartial or objective or even
2: adversarial
1: oh yeah oh yeah not at all to you know the, to the powers that be i mean my my pet example when people bring up the academy is like we'll take a look at woodrow wilson right is that that guy was an academic and he was basically like a the most reactionary figure of his era you know what i mean literally getting the united states involved in world war 1 exacerbating the contradictions of race literally like being the the clan president that's how i view him and then mm-hmm. bro- more broadly too right like the dunning school of southern history right where they view the lost cause myth of the south and the confederacy and try to provide intellectual justifications for it. So I'm not, I'm not here to shit on academics. I'm not here to shit on the academy uh, vociferously. But what I am here to say is that, you know, institutions are not inherently incorruptible. They are as susceptible to ideology as an individual is because they are staffed by individuals. It's, you know, once again, these things may be structural, but structures are staffed and operated by people. So, that was the secondary point of the Port Huron Statement. The first one, listen carefully because this may sound familiar to you as someone uh, whose crucible may have been forged in 2016 and 2020. The primary claim of the Port Huron Statement is that it is incumbent on them to demand and work towards a democratic party that is accountable to working class and left-wing interests, and that joining the party, working within it, and infiltrating it from the inside is how we're going to do it, and being more involved in participatory forms of democracy is our way through it. If this sounds familiar, raise your hand. (laughs) Because if this sounds like progressive media circles, if this sounds like DSA, if this sounds like uh, whatever wing of the Democrats you were involved with pre-2016, this is the formative crucible of the liberalism whose fumes you were huffing. They were probably based in something good in the 70s, and you are now running on fumes of those particular views to this day. and. It's not, um, it's not often discussed, but this is true that the founders of the DSA were present at this. Michael Harrington, I think, was one of the signatories of the Port Huron Statements, went Mm -hmm. on to become the chairman of the DSA. Um, So, if everything, if you're a DSA member and this sounded familiar to you, yep, that's why. Um, And I would argue that the modern left is not necessarily tainted by this view, but is has inherited this conception and this framework for its politic for its political origin and its worldview within um, how it should act within the American context
2: Yes. now the argument that I'm making is that basically the port Huron statement doesn't say that it is anti-communist but there were factions there that wanted a statement talking about communism being evil mm-hmm. there were factions that were communist however so like you know <laughs> it was a debate over the nature of the port huron statement and uh Adi, i don't know if you've ever seen the big lebowski
1: I mean, that's one of the first scenes in the Big Lebowski Right, where he's basically saying, I was there when they signed the Port Huron statement. Actually, I don't know.
2: He said the original Port Huron statement, not the compromised second draft. (laughs) (laughs) So what we're seeing here is that, okay, this whole thing happens because of the UAW through the Reuther brothers, who were working for the CIA. And then this statement which is largely one of the key texts for the modern u.s left essentially is doing a weird song and dance where they're not officially anti-communist but they're not embracing it not to sound too conspiratorial here i'm just saying like that's not conspiratorial at
1: all this is not conspiratorial. in fact like this attitude is what shapes later formations like dsa i mean like michael harrington as i mentioned earlier has does this mm-hmm. like schizoid approach to marxism almost where it's like you can have so uh socialist action without marxism as its backing thing and this idea that like we have to basically throw the baby out with the back bath water so to speak you throw out marxism because stalin equal bad you know
2: Exactly. And Harrington was a Shackmanite Trotskyite. He was from the Independent Socialist League, which was a marginal group that had no basis in the labor movement. And they were hoisting their anti-Stalinist, <clears throat> anti-Stalinist line. So just, just throwing it out there. I'm just, I'm just asking questions, folks.
1: It's again. It's just. It's just one of those things where it's like you know, if you just joined DSA because you wanted to do something, and you're like, "Huh." Everyone sure still seems mad about uh, the second international. What happened here?
2: <laughs> it's a real bro moment.
1: It's, it's 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 just it's just stuff where it's like I I I don't know. Like I'm not going to say that everyone in DSA is is doing a bad job or everyone in it is a Trotskyist. You know that's not true. But mm. it's fundamentally like it's it's a bizarre formation as far as socialist parties go, where it's like it's a it's a self-identified big tent. All sorts of people are in it. And you get
2: co- it's like you, the bizarro version of the Democratic Party
1: well, and here's here's the thing I was going to get at. So see C- Derek Varn of the Varn blog. If anyone's familiar with it, I think oh, he's yeah. a he's a good resource, definitely, if you're like a beginner to some of this history, he's a good resource to follow he was talking about harrington and basically was like if the dsa structure doesn't make sense to you it's because it's by design it's decentralized to mirror the democratic party structure and what the dsa was supposed to be was an interest group that lobbied on behalf of the good name of democratic socialism to the democratic party it was never meant to be anything beyond that Mm-hmm. Then twenty sixteen happens because of a of a dude named Bernie Sanders, and uh they've been off to the races since
2: and look at all the wins that they've racked up.
1: Not to say that all the work is useless, not to say that everyone there know, is like yeah
2: but it's but it's
1: again, it's like the contradictions are are apparent, and you can't understand a contradiction or begin to unravel it without a, exposing some of this history first. <laughs>
2: I will neither confirm nor deny (laughs) membership in the DSA. (laughs) Um, Now, if we do want to be conspiratorial, though, let me throw one factoid at you. So, you know, Tom Hayden of the uh, Port Huron statement and various groups that we're going to go through here soon.
1: Yeah, Tom Hayden was a member of the uh, Chicago 7. He's also from Royal Oak, Michigan, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Royal Oak, Michigan. does that? Does that signify anything?
1: Royal Oak um, is one of the... Tom Hayden. Let me make sure I'm... It's
0: to be him, right? Yeah, it's him. It's him.
1: So Royal Oak doesn't confirm anything specifically, but spe- um, it is a suburb right outside Detroit, connected by Woodward Avenue. It's still one of the primarily like wealthy ones, so to speak, but it's mostly like a uh, a white flight suburb that's the closest to the city and still maintains a lot of like cultural and economic influence, so to say.
2: Hmm. Now, here's a little fact about Tom Hayden. Growing up, the, uh, the parish priest for Tom Hayden's church, he, he grew up Catholic. The priest there was Father Coughlin.
1: No
0: shit. Yes. The kinda Father makes, Coughlin. Kind of makes you think, doesn't it?
2: So, here's what I would advance to your listeners. The new left, such as it is, I think, was infiltrated from the jump by certain agents who perhaps steered it in unproductive directions. That's my contention. As to any one person, I think you would just need to see the trajectory of their life and to see what happened to them to probably make an assessment.
0: a hell of a connection dear god
2: (laughs) my contention basically is that the new left and like michigan is like a major node of the new left Mm -hmm. so like looking at the michigan contingent you're almost looking at the whole network almost because everybody at least went to ann arbor and like you know these places and at least would attend conferences, even people not from Michigan. Basically, here's my contention. The rich, okay, at the end of all of this stuff, which includes literally like domestic terrorism and like insurrectionary politics and declaring war on the United States itself and setting off bombs and shit, at the end of the day, the rich kids ended up in professorships. And a lot of the poor kids ended up in prison or dead. Mm. Now, as to whether, <laughs> as to which were agents, I think it's not always the case where the rich kid was the agent, but it's not always not the case either. It definitely is a case by case basis.
1: Yeah. I mean, so you did like kind of skip a step there, which is basically like know. as the SDS. <laughs> is losing some traction more radical elements of it form what's called the weatherman uh was ted Kaczynski Uh, part of it at all or
2: uh i don't think he was i would freak the hell out if he was um i always thought he was like kind of apolitical like when would he have been because he was at harvard he was at harvard as like a teen and then where did he teach college
1: Let's see. Yeah, he was teaching mathematics or something too. I think.
2: Yeah, I forget which college he was teaching at. Let's see.
1: Crazy, crazy smart guy. It's very weird.
2: Oh, University of Michigan. Interesting. There we go. There we go. Mm, I forgot that there was a Michigan element to the Kaczynski story.
0: Hmm.
1: They enrolled at the University of Michigan, where he earned his master's and doctoral degrees in mathematics in 64 and 67, respectively. Not his first choice for postgrad education. He applied to UC Berkeley and U- University of Chicago, which accepted him but offered him no teaching position or aid. Michigan offered him an annual grant of $2,310, equivalent to $20,000 and change in 2021, and a teaching post
2: that's right now i'm not aware of him interacting in any way with politics around this time which is not to say that he didn't i'm just not aware of it but god dang if i am not now very interested in the possibility
1: yeah i have like i have i have no way to like, like the unabomber stuff is stuff i really don't understand much for whatever reason like I always heard that he was more influenced by anarchist thought. You see some of it in like uh his manifesto. Again, I don't even know if like it's true that he wrote it or not. Is that is that something that you can reasonably suspect or not? Uh
2: I mean, I've never heard any good questions. like I'm not aware of any indications that he didn't write it. It okay. is interesting, though, the possibility that uh, he was not the only person because uh, he did or the Unabomber bombings alluded to a Freedom Club that at first they thought was more than just like one guy. And who knows? Maybe it was more than just one guy. It's you, <laughs> I don't exactly. PTK vibes once the again. Yeah. hmm. Oh, gosh. For your listeners out there, Ted Kaczynski was subject to MKUltra experiments.
1: And that is something that's documented, right? Like, uh... Yeah. Yeah, his lawyers later attributed his hostility towards mind control techniques to his participation in Murray's study. Some sources have suggested that Murray's experiments were part of MKUltra, the CIA's research into mind control. Chase and others have also suggested that this experience may have motivated his criminal activities.
2: That is a good point. It is not officially considered MKUltra, it's just the same types of experiments.
1: Well, if you're make doing the same, same type of experiment,
2: <laughs> if
1: an experiment Almost. is done under MKUltra's aegis, does a mind control it make? <laughs>
0: Who's to yes. say? Dear God. So,
2: what I would say probably is there's definitely, because it was a it was at Michigan where he was having the gender dysphoria as well. Yeah. There's a lot of uh probably a lot more to the story as to his time at Michigan that has not been told.
1: Yeah, it's it's very odd because like just looking at the Wikipedia and like glimpsing through it, right? It's very odd that like his professors are saying like he's a smart guy, he seems to have been having a good time. Kaczynski himself is like, it was the worst time of my life. Um, And then this... uh, There's this documented um, period, and he... Sorry, Kaczynski themselves identify that... um, They had, you know, this sense that they identified as female, and they wanted to undergo gender transition. I don't think... Kaczynski ever followed up with it though is that the case
2: my just, understanding it? my understanding is that yeah he didn't continue with that and like it doesn't seem to come up before or since which is not to say that it didn't happen I just it is weird that that comes out like almost as its own disclosure many years later I'm not saying it's all fabricated. I'm just thinking that like possibly portions of the story come out at different times, you know, like it is just interesting to think about.
1: It It is a weird detail to like, to, to mention, but also it's like, again, like with like this bizarre, like understated stuff from his like professors that like, well, Kaczynski seems to be doing okay, but then privately, Kaczynski admits they're not doing well. It's odd.
2: It is odd, and given the bizarre experiments he was going under, you know, I'm not sure whether that's... I mean, I'm not even sure if that's like, I'm not even sure how much any part of like this what's been released is actually true. I'm not trying to say that it didn't happen, though. There's just so many. Still, so many unresolved questions with the with Uncle Ted's story.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, again, w- once again, bizarre Michigan connection rears its head.
2: Um, but, but the we- uh,
1: the weathermen are on. Yeah.
2: yeah, as far as we know. Uh, I did want to point out, though, actually. So the weather, okay, factions that would become the weathermen closed the SDS national office, which functionally shut down what was essentially a mass org of 100,000 members across multiple campuses. And the Weathermen, the group that came out of that, basically shut down what was effectively an effective organization, the SDS, in Hmm. favor of guerrilla actions which would alienate the masses.
1: Now, is this happening at the same time as like the Biderman? Bader Meinhof group in, uh, in Germany, or is it like, there's a slight overlap. between the Loosely
2: around the same time, I think. Yeah. Okay. Like, I think they might've started a little sooner, but, uh, yes. Like basically what we're talking about is that like, okay, I have like w- one of the weathermen, like John, his name was John Jacobs. He's mm-hmm. talking about the days of rage. And this passage says, Weathermen would shove the war down their dumb fascist throats and show them, while we were at it, how much better we were than them, both tactically and strategically as a people. In an all-out civil war over Vietnam and other fascist U.S. imperialism, we were going to bring the war home. Turn the imperialists' war into a civil war, in Lenin's words, and we were going to kick ass. Now, what I want to emphasize, basically, is like, the weathermen took real... Righteous anger about the war in Vietnam, which was just like a genocidal, horrible fascist, imperialist war. And they basically, I don't know if you noticed, Adi, but they said that they wanted to show, first of all, how much better we were than them. Like, I, my contention is that this sort of belies like the essentially like rich entitled like college radical mindset like where the fuck in like historical materialism do you go off about how much better you are than your opponent like what that's not like a that's like a moral judgment that's not like anything that's not marxian you know like what what are you talking about and second of all you're declaring war on the united states like what do you think that's a good tactical move like what like, what is this? And then yeah. they, they literally quote Lenin, and then they engage in terrorism. And Lenin was always very much against terrorism. So either you don't know Lenin very well, or you're just,
0: like, using it, you know,
2: in bad faith. Like, which is it? I don't so for, that, that's an people, interesting
1: point to bring up too because even today like there's this beef that gets keep, keeps getting relitigated of like uh, grassroots organizers versus labor what is basically called like uh red diaper babies or like uh mm-hmm. labor aristocracy. So that that divide still exists even today. Wow.
2: Yeah. And so like basically the weather underground would go on to just bomb like a ridiculous number of like Instances of bombing, like... Yeah. Let me see. I forget the number exactly, but... Just, like, thousands and thousands of bombs they would set off. Mostly, like, against property, not not people. Typically, if anyone died, it was usually them blowing themselves up. Rather than, uh... You know, blowing up, like enemy like combatants I guess but like the point that I'm trying to make is that like the weather underground engaged in terrorism and it it freaked out normal people Mm -hmm. like even though you could maybe make a moral case that like you should oppose the US war machine in the context of Vietnam like not At a certain point, like, declaring war on the United States as a relatively small, like, vanguard party of, like, far-left politics is either just plain stupid or intentionally leading people astray. And it's like, okay, which one is it? Like, probably depending member by member, it was probably certain
0: amounts of both.
1: And if not that, definitely, like, there's probably decent reason then to suspect, like, uh, roles of provocateurs basically encouraging the violence.
2: That's right. And if you were to go to the Wikipedia page, you would see a whole category called COINTELPRO for the Weather Underground. Yep, here we are. However... It doesn't actually go very much into what COINTELPRO did to the Weather Underground. It mostly talks about the fact that interestingly, groups associated with the Weather Underground broke into an FBI office to find documents to show that COINTELPRO existed. Which was like a cool thing, trust me, like by all means. But like, were there COINTELPRO? Or other agents, maybe chaos agents, within the Weather Underground? Almost certainly. Like, basically what I'm saying is that, like, the the members of the Weather Underground, whose names you might know, who ended up as professors, I
0: question whether they, uh were
2: genuine. That, that's what I would say, like Bill Ayers. Like, if you end up in a organization like this, and then you come out of it somehow, you've declared war on the United States, and then you go underground, and you come out of it, and you end up a professor somewhere, I'm sorry, I just don't think you were actually fighting the United States.
0: Yeah, I think once again, the point stands that, like, I don't know, it stinks to high heaven.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, like, with the Black Panthers, all of the top leaders ended up dead. Yeah. And, like, for sure, a fair amount of the Weather Underground ended up dead, but usually it was due to blowing themselves up. Like, a few of the guys ended up with pretty long prison sentences, but, you know, some of them walked away almost, like, with successful careers. Like, I don't know, like, I definitely feel like I'm making the case poorly, but I'm just saying, like, that's my contention.
1: I think I think once again it's like maybe it's not our job to make the case properly, you know. But it is, mm-hmm. it is once again odd. It's like okay, you did this, and you got uh you got an academic ache out of it. That's 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 strange.
2: Well, okay. Let me let me just raise the uh, okay the Michigan militia. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to let's Where? go to the right now instead of the left. <laughs> well. You know how they basically had that, what was that plot to, like, kidnap the governor?
1: So, yeah, we don't we don't need to rehash this particular story. Right. I think my, my listeners should be familiar with it.
2: No, but, They're, like, I'm just saying, like, the point is basically, like, you take a group which is dangerous, whether that's essentially people who would join a militia or people who would join the Weather Underground. You get them to basically do actions, but... The weather underground mostly does like property damage bombings that don't really hurt anyone. You get these radicals to go underground, and then you take out the ones that might actually be genuine. You get some agents in there to provoke some shit, and then at the end of the day, half of them end up good Democrats, and the other half end up either dead or in jail. Does that sound like an inciting operation to you? <laughs> That's odd. all I meant with, like bringing up the governor plot, basically.
1: no, that makes sense. that makes that makes perfect sense. I think we can definitely safely say then that, like the left, in all its forms, basically was either uh, infiltrated, demobilized, or Suppressed in certain capacities, and then we've talked about the student movement and how it's been suppressed. We Mm -hmm. did touch on NOI. Uh, Mm -hmm. do we want to maybe touch on the white Panthers and the Michigan militia as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, the white Panthers were basically the same story where it was just like a radical group initially, like trying to support the black Panthers, excuse me, basically, Mm -hmm. like to channel white radicals into a path that like was genuinely the initial idea is good to like support the black panthers and you know i think that like the the head of the white panthers essentially that john sinclair i think i do get a read that he was probably more genuine because he had to end up like in exile living in europe to basically avoid various charges for Honestly, some pretty dumb shit that the White Panthers kept doing.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Kick Out the Jams, right?
1: Kick Out the Jams, what?
2: Oh, that's just the MC5. That was a band associated with the White Panthers, and uh, that's one of their songs. It's like, kick out the jams, motherfucker. Okay, I'm really showing my age here, then, because it's like...
1: (laughs) The that's punk so scene. The punk scene is one of those that's just like I unfortunately don't have that much experience with. It's not like I'm anti-punk or anything. It's just like I don't have that much formative knowledge of it. I'll definitely check it out, but like the punk scene and yeah. shit. But from from our like uh, cohort on Twitter, most folks tend to have been like either tangentially or like were like in the punk mold before, you know, getting into some of this stuff, but. Hmm. I'm definitely the odd man out. I was more of like', uh, I'd say like yeah r and b has been like my my focus musically at least, ooh, smooth jams, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah m c five is also again, so you, this was a band that was tied to the white Panthers and may have also been a, mm-hmm. in in Co prode
2: jeez, yeah, they <laughs> a lot of the white panthers and like the m c five like they were very much like kind of like stupid like a lot of white radicals of the kind of the dumber but genuinely on the right side of history but then ended up going down for like a lot of like weed charges mostly like Mm -hmm. a lot of like you know like if you're in the 60s and 70s and you were white and you went down for drugs then you were probably like S- to a certain extent, maybe stupid, but like probably you weren't like a freaking snitch or like an informant or something because like they have to feed the cops somebody, and unfortunately, more often than not, it was people like that.
0: Gotcha. Trying
1: to figure out. Let's see. What else what else about the left do we got to expose before we move to the right? I think we got of, uh, let's see.
2: Oh yeah, well, maybe just real quick. I mean, in 1966 Ramparts magazine, which was a cool radical magazine the likes of which don't doesn't exist anymore, basically published that Michigan State University was used by the CIA from 1955 to 1959. To run a covert police training program in South Vietnam. Mm. So basically, as direct a connection to like the fucking heinous shit going on in Vietnam as you could get. So all the student radicals at MSU were just like, wait, what the fuck? And so, like, that kind of like that disclosure kind of like caused a avalanche of other disclosures of like the CIA working with a shit ton of American universities to do just like downright cartoonishly evil shit and you know a lot of what we know today came out from in early on like this ramparts article and then like subsequent revelations so it was like very important in terms of like paranoid weirdo types like myself like (laughs) never shutting the hell up about this shit
1: Mm -hmm. that's i mean that's crazy that they were able to break the story and like I think there was some some stuff in the lower appendix you wrote about where it's like there were a bunch of generals from like uh, from this area as well, MSU doing stuff like for South Vietnam and even like both both state and UMish are like these weird hotbeds for sus activity to begin with, right? So MSU definitely the Nasser case from a couple of years ago, it was like oh, the site fuck. of that. Okay. That was
2: definitely a broader network. Holy shit.
1: Yeah. It was it was one of the landmark uh, moments of, of Me Too, of the Me Too era for sure. Mm-hmm. Um and then the University of Michigan, and I would say what I can only call the Ann Arbor Industrial Complex is something worth <laughs> looking at as well. So Ann Arbor again is one of these places that's like it's seen as this hub of like radical liberalism and tolerance and the you know like it's this on a bat like, like and when people talk about like the excesses of college life at american campuses ann arbor is like the poster child of, the- of that mm-hmm. um but also like again like ann arbor is a little weird because it is also this like massive um Hub for the University of Michigan, which is like the biggest employer in the state. There's a weird white nationalist scene in Ann Arbor too. Somehow. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> what's, what's related? I, maybe, maybe. And again, it's just like Ann Arbor is this like massive pocket of money, basically surrounded by farmland until you get back to Oakland County. It is a characteristically unique city in Michigan. Yeah. Especially knowing Detroit's nearby and didn't get, like, nearly as much love from an aesthetic perspective.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: So, yeah, I don't know. It seems like all aspects of youth, counterculture, and, like, whatever nascent formation of a new left was going on in Michigan had been, like, infiltrated... Well, what's interesting,
2: yeah, no, what's interesting too is that there is this counter narrative of like cool shit from Michigan. So like, okay, like, you know, the Rampart story, like there was like basically that, you know, burglary that showed that COINTELPRO existed in the first place. There's all these radical publishers in Michigan, at least they Mm -hmm. used to be, that would publish all kinds of Articles that are, to this day, very important for, like, parapolitics. And there was this, you know, thing, the Winter Soldier investigation, which yes, I thought was, like, worth uh, going into at least a little bit <clears throat> for the listeners. Basically, the Vietnam War was going on for a long time. 1971, this group called the Vietnam Veterans Against the War held this media event in Michigan, in Detroit specifically. And basically it held hearings that tried to show that there was a direct relationship between U S military policy and war crimes in Vietnam. They wanted to explain how my Lai, you know, the, the famous massacre in Vietnam was yeah. not an isolated or rare occurrence and that it happened all over the place and there were all kinds of things that came out about various atrocities and different war crimes that they committed i want to say like half the shit about like the secret war in laos came out because of this like all mm. the winter soldier investigation ended up being hugely influential for like honestly shortening the war and ending it and it was carried out by these Vietnam veterans right there in Michigan.
0: It's, yeah, that's crazy.
1: I I was definitely unaware of this. Which again, so, like,
2: there is, like, this... No, it's just, like, there's this counter-story where it's, like, Michigan, sus as hell, also Michigan. A lot of really cool shit coming out of it.
1: Yeah, I think it's, like... I don't know. You can't write off everything, I guess, just because it's been infiltrated. Mm-hmm. You still gotta, you know, appreciate the good work that comes out, and like make sure you support the people who don't cave into the oppression.
2: Absolutely. Audio, you sound like you're dying.
1: <laughs> I can keep going. No, I'm a trooper, dude. I I can do this.
2: <laughs> I was just, I was just,
1: I'm just like i'll be i'll be very honest i was quite intimidated like about doing this episode for a while because like i knew i was gonna get blown the fuck out of the water when you came on
2: oh sucks! we didn't have to tackle as much as we did no you're fine you're fine
1: i don't even mean it from like an endurance perspective but just like you know i i got a lot to learn i'm not i will never admit to knowing everything you know
2: shit man i don't (laughs) i don't know everything either (laughs)
1: My my goal is just like you know to put this in a format that is how do I put this? I am basically trying to trigger more apostasy from American civic religion, American civic religion, to put it bluntly.
2: Mm, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't basically committed to that project. Exactly,
1: well. exactly. You know, we are both uh, we are both running in the same apostatic circles, but <laughs> um. I think like okay, I'm just I'm just trying to figure out like when we come to like the left and the we've basically covered some of the events of the radical left in Michigan. We've also covered like its infiltration. You have covered um, the broader patriot movement and the militia movement in your excellent series with uh, Dr. Wendy Painting on Program to Chill. So we don't need to necessarily like uh beat this horse, so to speak, but mm-hmm. I guess we can't really talk about the left being infiltrated without saying that like, no, there is this bizarre network of radical right wing networks, also based out of Michigan, also um infiltrated to varying degrees, um and like we mentioned earlier like they there was a bit of a lull and then all of a sudden they come back to life um in the advent of the Trump era so maybe we can briefly touch on them
2: yeah definitely i mean i'm not as up on like the malicious stuff that's been going on in michigan i mean i know that it is there but i'm not sure i have anything like really to add per se
1: It's, like, again, like, from a topical perspective, too, right, is, like, most of my expertise is mostly anecdotal. It's mostly vibes-based, you know? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, But I would basically say that, like, and this is probably indicative for the country as a whole, right, where it's, like, you live in one of three zones. You live in the country, you live in a suburban area, or you live in the city, and your life does not look the same in either of the three and you're you learn to be suspicious of people in other zones for lack of a better term
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and in michigan particularly the way that plays out is like people from the suburbs distrust people from the city and then are either apprehensive of Or fetishize country living, but then stick to the suburbs because that's where you can maintain your creature comforts and stay connected to the US supply chain, so to speak. If you live in the city, you have correctly learned that in the suburbs, you are at risk of being put into danger, and in the country, there is no one there to help you. And then if you're from a rural area, you know you see the suburbs as either a place to, like, upwardly mo- get overly mobile towards, or you just have fully imbibed the culture war and you see them as godless, you know? But And, and that's not to say that, like, it's fully reductive to these three capacities. This is just my observation. Observing.
2: What, yeah, what's so interesting is how divorced it is from, like, class-based understanding, because, like, they're rich and... Middle class and poor people in all three, you know, one hundred
1: percent, one hundred percent.
2: It just doesn't map onto like any meaningful distinctions, and that's like something that all those like weird pat sock like, mega communist idiots like probably know, but choose to ignore. Is that like they act as if that's a meaningful distinction, and like it isn't a substitute for class like politics like it's it just doesn't work that way there are all kinds of like rural people like we used to call them like redneck royalty with like you you live far out but you live in a mcmansion with like a huge mm-hmm. lifted truck and then there's all kinds of like rich urbanites there's rich suburb. like it, these distinctions like are probably like overly inflated to like divide people but like they shouldn't you know they they should not at
1: all and i think like again our discussion here may seem excessive at first glance but the reason why we focused on the 70s as this period right is this is basically the last gasp of Radical politics tied to any conception of class, period, being snuffed out. And what follows in the wake of neoliberalization and financialization is the replacement of all politics with the culture war. Mm -hmm. And the culture war that started in the Reagan era is the one we have today, basically. It's a little more sophisticated. We got iPads and rechargeable phones now, but... I mean, to what extent is... I'm not trying to be reductive here. I'm actually trying to be very serious here, right? But it's like the anxieties about trans people today, the anxieties about people who live in the city versus people who live in rural areas Mm -hmm. are not necessarily the same as they were in the 70s, more so than they are like heightened tensions of the same fears people had then.
2: Um, yeah instead of trans people it was just fears over like a mansonoid cult or like hippies in general you know
1: or like in the opposite direction you're scared of the gays period you know yeah so to say, to say the least like the Michigan militia is one of those things where it's like if you grew up in the suburbs like me you live I, I mean and I'll say this I'll say this very honestly right is that The Michigan suburbs are, like, probably one of the most cushy places anyone could be raised. You live in, like, (laughs) idyllic weather. You have full access to all the bounty of the American supply chain as a consumer. You're not really that far off from other crazy stuff that you could enjoy. You live in Michigan, so if you need to, like, go somewhere for a natural retreat, the state's your oyster, you know? You want a beach? You can go there. You want to go chill in the woods? You can go there. Um, skiing and shit in the winter—they got it. But,
2: um, but no Cedar Point.
1: Well, we no, we invade Ohio for that. Don't worry. <laughs> that stretch of seventy-five, ooh, we, we we take the turnpike for that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's you know. I think um, you get so comfortable that you get blinded to one all the dark stuff that's happened in the past. One, like, I'll just be honest, I was a fucking kid. There's no way I could have known some of this stuff. Oh yeah, they're not telling you about it. Period. But then also, like, you know, you get comfortable. You don't. You're not. You're not. You're not exposed to the looking at the world with an inquisitive eye if it wasn't for certain experiences in my life, if it wasn't for like having the chance to live abroad for a bit, if it wasn't for like, I'll I'll be very honest, right? Like I was kind of very viciously bullied um, when I was younger. So mm. the, one of the symptoms of pair of being paranoid is having low self-esteem. You're always worried about what people think about you. Right.
2: <laughs> but that makes, to- yeah, that makes sense
1: yeah so to to say to say the least right is that i got very interested in like understanding certain political realities i got very interested in looking at things big picture um you find a degree of peace in that but you also try to like figure out why is the world not as perfect as it seemed to be and that's that's a long digression to say that like you don't learn about the militia movement until you start to examine the dark history of racism, until you start to examine, like, the millenarian fears that come up in the 90s at, like, the end of history era, right? If you were born, like, at the turn of the century, you, you didn't live through it, basically. <laughs> to put it bluntly. So you just look yeah. at, like, things like the militia movement, you're like, what the fuck is this? but but to say the least right like um it's very timely that i've been reading the books that i have because i read um a people's history last year um followed it up immediately with aberration and then uh i think spencer ackerman's reign of terror and you know aberration is about the okc bombing and the militia movement, and more broadly Timothy McVeigh, and then Reign of Terror situates the post 9 11 era, starting with Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. So it's this like, event that, like, if you just were born after it, it's been preemptively memory-holed for you. That you don't even begin to realize just how formative the militia movement, that Emergent wave of conservatism and white reaction and this this coming age of like the end of history, so to speak, as this like thing that's making people scared. I don't know how else to view it. It just it see, like I look at this era of history as someone living comfortably in 2023. Not comfortably per se, but like, you know, I'm I'm here after it happened and I'm just like, what the fuck is this?
2: It's interesting, right? Because we kind of opened up the discussion talking about like the end of history from like a liberal perspective. Yeah. But you're right. There is the dark inverse, the right wing view of the end of history. And it is very much more of like an apocalyptic view, Mm -hmm. millenarian, things of this nature. And like, there is definitely this view that like things are coming to a close. Whether you want to frame that in like a, christian eschatology or like if you want to like you know describe it in like marxist terms or something but like the american empire is ending like things could potentially get pretty wild i don't know what it's going to look like but like this country's on the decline (laughs) like whether or not that might be good for the rest of the world it might be pretty rocky here
1: yeah Yeah, and it's like, I don't think they correctly saw the decline for what it was. Because I think, like, you know, you could, as a Marxist, you look at this and you correctly can say, as Marx predicted, the rate of profit tends to decline eventually. And this is the decline we're living through. There's only so much fucking profit you could make before. (laughs) I mean, you're just pissing in your mouth at this point, right? From a financial perspective and the gargantuan amount of force one it took to maintain the empire domestically and abroad and how much the machine's wheels had to be ble- had to be greased with blood literally was unsustainable fundamentally
2: well it's interesting actually you mentioned C Derek Varn cuz i swear i heard him say once that probably the powers that be that really run society on an international level figured out this that this declining rate of profit thing was real (laughs) and that there were there was a world war to deal with that because if you destroy enough you almost reset the counter and I sure would be worried if, oh I don't know various factions kept talking about another major war. It's a chilling
0: prospect, but uh, I'm just saying
2: it's a possibility.
1: But yeah, I think like the (laughs) militia movement comes out of that. And I think in your, probably one of your earliest episodes for Program to Chill, you also talk about how financialization of farms and particularly like, like the raw deal that Rural communities were given as a consequence of neoliberalism may have fanned the flames for the militia movement.
2: Oh, yeah. No, like in the 80s and like there were like these huge bust outs of farms where like these farms were basically fucking tricked into like overextending themselves because there were these grain deals to the Soviets. And then the fucking State Department took away or canceled the freaking grain deals to the Soviets and then all these farmers were overextended and they all fucking lost their farms and guess who swooped in but a bunch of financial companies to like basically buy up these farms and wouldn't you know that like basically that core of farmers that got fucked were the initial core of the first real wave of the militia movement it is basically a downwardly mobile, like, anxiety-driven thing, but it's, at least initially, based in, like, real, like, economic, like, chicanery, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. But then it's also, again, like, there's these there's these bizarre elements that touch up against it, like uh, Christian identity, white identity stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd argue, like... This is this is maybe this is just a bizarre question. You you do address like a lot of this in uh, your series with Doctor Painting, but could you argue that maybe there's like a line between like the militia movement and like the John Birch Society, or is that too reductive?
2: Oh yeah, no, they're definitely like different movements, and they overlap and interact in several ways. But yeah, for sure they are different because like the militia. Okay, it's interesting, right? Because the John Birch Society. Fundamentally, was backed by a less well-known thing called the called NAM, which is to say, like I think it's National Association of Manufacturers. Mm. So, as you might imagine, it's basically a collection of all the different, mostly like light and medium industry, because heavy industry has their own games they're playing. But like these manufacturers were funding the John Birch Society, which itself was. It's, it's a kooky fucking org, but the whole point of it is to just push the Overton window to the right.
0: Basically, that,
2: that was the original purpose. I mean, after a certain point, it was less important and they found other like means to carry out their goals. But like that was the initial like push. And then like the militia movement does have roots in other different groups. I'm not as well conversant in them versus, like, John Birch Society and them. But, like, my understanding is that it's some, like, weirder shit with, like, the army and, like, or the armed services of the United States, I guess. And, like, other factions I'm not even entirely aware of.
1: Yeah. I, I guess to what extent also could you then look at, like, the militia movement as, like, the frontier has come home, basically?
2: Mm, I think that's a strong reading for, like, that, like, mindset, at least in terms of the members. Because, like, it's funny, right? Because, like, anytime that uh, someone with, like, a left view of history looks at things, there's always this impulse to be like, oh, wait. They brought the war home. And, like. You can look at that in Oklahoma City with the bombing. You can look at that with, like, Vietnam and then some of the fallout after that. But, like, it was, like, a continually reoccurring thing. So it was, like, the Spanish-American War with the Philippines all the way to, like, when there wasn't actually a frontier with, like, the Indian Wars. Like, there was always this, like, recycling of, like, the violence on the frontier brought back home and then, like, exported the violence back out again Mm -hmm. it's just like a cycle that just continues i guess that's like what an engine does right i mean the war machine such as it is
0: yeah
1: so i don't know like my my overall thing with the the resurgence of the militias at this point is like they basically make their move in like the early round of like I don't know. I COVID conspiracy stuff is just stuff that like I don't like getting into because it's like everything about that time in everyone's lives was so stupid. I try not to think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. There's
1: still so much research that would need to be done to unpack what the fuck just happened. Especially when the official story was changing almost every day.
2: Not so my strong suit either.
1: Um, yeah, exactly. Like, there's a lot of people who are very opinionated. I'm just, I'm just gonna be very frank about like I try not to get into it,
2: but I'm not a science guy, quote unquote.
1: As a science guy, I try not to get into it. How about
2: that? <laughs> How about that? fuck <laughs> it? One the, struggle, <laughs> honestly.
1: <laughs> but like, I'd say that like the first round prior, like you did bring up um, the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan prior. Similar elements were first seen in, like, the first protest of the lockdown in Michigan, where there's almost, like, this dress rehearsal of the storming the Capitol, basically, in Lansing. Mm. And they basically break into a legislative assembly meeting. I think the reps were all evacuated or whatever. But it was this big, like, again, I don't know if it was a show. I don't know what to consider it. Do you consider these things tantrums, or do you consider these things, like, real organized threats? And I try not to be too hysterical with some of this. But it happens, and then it kind of sets the scene for January 6th later, as well as the kidnapping plot for Whitmer, which was foiled by informants, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just kind of wondering now, like I don't know, th- like seeing the Lansing thing happen first, then January six, like a couple months after. I'm starting to view this idea of like, is Michigan a testing ground for such shit? And there's no way to prove this. There's no fucking way to prove this. This is all conjecture on my part.
2: But I just, I think I'm trying to note that's it- really good. I like that. I think it kind of is a testing ground. I mean. Whether you want to, like, look at a narrow case of, like, the Nation of Islam, they tried it in Michigan, and then they sent it over to other, you know, like, or whether you want to, like, look at, like, MK Ultra shit, or literally just, like, how to deal with, like, unions, you know, like, or how to infiltrate the new left. Like, I think you could make a case that they try things in Michigan. No and then if they succeed they might take them
0: somewhere else
1: i see th- yeah again it's it's just it's one of those things that like try it in michigan in miniature and see how it plays out
2: yeah still- i mean you talk about like business conspiracies what do they do but they test a new marketing strategy in one market if it works they roll it out to other markets i'm just saying yeah ab testing but for like <laughs> domestic like counterinsurgency. insurgency
1: <laughs> that is a dark way to look at this but yeah yeah i don't i don't know like between the The left spectrum and the right spectrum of uh, radical politics in Michigan. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Sorry, Michigan.
0: Yeah.
1: There is a a major Dutch center on the west side of the state, though. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's see. I think, yeah. We've kind of covered, like... uh,
1: The radical movements we've covered, elite families, we even covered the universities being just just weird hotbeds of sus shit. Even MK Ultra. Um, and I'm not gonna. I'm I'm just gonna say like this was an incredibly ambitious topic for both of us, trying to cover <laughs> almost every sus element of a single state in the union in like a one or th- two or three parter podcast is 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 you know ambitious to say the least but i feel like we covered everything i planned to discuss in the out- outline mm-hmm. i think we even like went further than i expected and um i will break this up but we did technically do this all in one night
2: that's right so if sometimes i'm inarticulate chalk it up to that
1: chalk it up to that or chalk it up to me doing a bad job editing who's to say (laughs) but yeah i'd say um
0: you know what is life in michigan it's not just the creature
1: comforts of um enjoying a verners from your porch on like a on a on an ambient day it's also wondering what's going on underneath all the quiet mm. and it's like i don't know like there's certain places you go where like the bad vibes truly are palpable you can feel it in your bones and i'm not i'm not necessarily like I'm not agnostic. I'm not necessarily immune to magical thinking. I like to think of myself as more mysterious, right? But to understand history is to, in a way, like examine that feeling. In a way, it is examining like why is it that there's this palpable darkness in certain places? What happened here to make it feel this way? Oh. And uncovering that knowledge in a, in a, in a way is, like, it's, it's tough work to do, but it is also cathartic in a certain way. It also, like, I would say studying some of this stuff, teaching people about it, bringing it to light is also a way that we can, in our own small ways, offer justice to those who were victimized and those who were hurt even if we can't deliver, you know, pure justice on our own terms. It may not even be our place to do that, you know?
2: Yeah, no, I don't necessarily view myself as a vehicle for dispensing justice, but damn if I won't call out any time I have the chance someone for their shitty ancestors who have
1: completely <laughs>
2: ruined something. Or, like, honestly, just people who are still alive, let's be real. Like, that's more important, but, like like we you know we talked at the very beginning about like a tactical retreat into the past but like it's it is more than that it's not just a retreat like sometimes you have to do this in order to advance at all and like i don't know i just think that like studying parapolitics i don't think people have to do it to the extent that I have or other researchers. I think like you can dip your toe in it and usually you can find something useful for some other political project that you might have. Right. If you endlessly study the JFK assassination until you're, you know, for 50 years, it's not, there are diminishing returns in anything, but like, I think that, to basically make society better you have to have your heart on fire and your brain on ice mm-hmm. as a certain man once said and I think that studying history can help with that is what I would say
1: yeah I agree with that and I think that once again like to understand history is it is like it is like I don't know. It should be one of those things that's in your bones if you identify as part of the left. Whether Mm -hmm. you're an anarchist, whether you're a communist, whether you're something in the middle, I'm not. I'm not here to infight. I'm really more here just to stress that, like, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist at like a stage that was produced by past conditions, by past decisions, by past results. We may not be in a similar place to act as people did in the past. We may not be able to do all the same things. We may ourselves feel powerless, right? But like you said, this isn't about a retreat. It's actually more of a reconnaissance.
0: Hmm.
1: And to bring the French connection in once again, re reconnaissance in French is to relearn, to re-know.
0: Hmm. not to get linguistic up
1: in there, but I think like that's, I don't know to get mys mist- to get a little mystic with it is like, I think
2: yeah, for- not, not for nothing is almost every spiritual tradition have something with ancestors and history in the past. Like it enriches your life for one thing and for another, like how can you make sense of anything? If you don't have history, if you don't have your family, your ancestors, in any form you don't have anything you know
1: 100 percent, and i think that is like the gift of human consciousness if you will is like it is the ability to witness observe interpret and then
0: share history with people mm. we can't
1: conquer time but that that's our you know our kind of like ability to to stab at time, we can't beat it, but we can like make observations. We can observe it moving against us, and it may feel like a an exercise in powerlessness at times. But it's not our job, maybe, to solve everything ourselves. It's maybe like passing on what we do observe to others, and hoping that I don't know, maybe everyone gets it, and we we fight this stuff off. We make these real changes, but to say the least, right? Um, You can't do that without accepting certain uncomfortable truths. You can't do that without observing some of these unsavory elements or maybe getting past a certain reservation that's been imposed upon you about what's uh, appropriate to discuss and what is haram, you know? And specifically, mm. like, if you are brought up in the current academic model, not to say that everything you learn there is going to be useless, not to say that everyone there is, you know, someone you can't make friends with. It's more of, like, there is what is done to maintain a particular mode of production, so to speak, and then there's what goes into pro- uh, to protecting it. What you say and what you observe goes into that as well. And I think merely calling things into attention certain times presents a threat to the powers that be. Why else wouldn't they want you to talk about it? Mm -hmm. So, with all that being said, uh, Jimmy, I want to thank you for coming to the greenhouse and having this very extended discussion with me on my home state and it's very suspicious aspects. Um, is there anything else you want to share to the listeners before we start closing out?
2: No, I think that was uh, very well said and I, I agree with you and, uh, I just want to thank you for having me.
1: It was a pleasure having you on, man. This is. um, this is, I think, like one of those projects I've been like, when am I going to do this? And having done it, I kind of feel like I've met a certain level of achievement, so to speak. <laughs> I don't know how else to how else to describe it.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely know the feeling for sure. <laughs> like, yeah, I can I can
1: hold my own like with Jimmy, not against Jimmy, but with Jimmy. You know what I mean?
2: Hmm. No, absolutely.
1: Um And yeah, this, I think, you know, is probably a capstone. This will probably be like episode 69 and 70, respectively, so. Nice. I can move on to bigger and better things with the show. Who's to say?
2: Oh, yeah. I think you got a lot cooking, so.
1: Oh, there's a, there's a lot more me. We cooking with the buku. We doing the roux. We doing the jambalaya right there. The red bean and rice. Ooh, <laughs> more ami Uh... <laughs> So I'm going to do you want to plug the program to chill?
2: Oh, yeah. Listeners, you should check out program to chill. It's a pretty cool podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then you will definitely like the show.
1: Uh, Jimmy also has a Patreon where he releases um, exclusive uh, patrons. It's not patron only. I think you also release them out to the general feed eventually. Right.
2: Eventually, so yeah, not everything ends up, but yeah, for sure.
1: uh it there's, gets
2: there's free there's content and there's Patreon content for sure.
1: Yeah, the the program to chill Patreon earns the greenhouse gaslighting value for money endorsement. Thank you. Um. So yeah, thanks again for coming through, Jimmy. Um, and thank you for putting up with the length of this. particular episode dear listener um this was another production of greenhouse gaslighting i haven't used that ending before i'm gonna run with it Hmm. um you can find all of our links to other social media sites and our twitter in the description below um i'll include sources and links in the description as well until next time take care dear listener